You can be seated. Will you pray with me? Oh, everlasting Father, we're gathered here this morning in your presence for your glory and your glory alone. And God, we come recognizing the truth of the songs that we have sung, that the greatest gift you could give to anyone that anyone could receive has already been given by you. So in this season of Thanksgiving, where we remember the spiritual discipline of gratitude and thankfulness, Father, we first give you thanks for the gift of the cross. Because there's no more for heaven to give that will transcend, that will go beyond the gift of salvation, the gift of new life and rebirth that we receive from Jesus. And so, God, may that be the center of all that we are and all that we do this morning. God, I pray for the weary hearts that came in um, this morning. I pray for those that are suffering in sickness, those that are suffering in, in despair and depression. Father, Father, for those who, in what should be a joy-filled week of family, experienced pain this week, pain of recognizing an empty seat at the table, pain of having to face their grief head-on at a different holiday, or Father, the pain of disconnection because families are splintered and families are broken. Or Father, perhaps it was the pain of gathering with a, a family member who you dearly love but who is lost and has rejected you. Father, I pray that we would lay those burdens before you this morning, the burdens of grief and despair, the burdens, the burdens of broken dreams and hope that has been lost. And Father, may we lay it before you, and will you, Father, carry our burdens for us? Father, we long to have an experience with you this morning that takes us deeper into your presence. We're here to abide with you as you abide with us. And so, God, by your word and by your spirit, will you move us this morning, change us this morning, leave us different than the way that we came in. Father, as we open your word together, we ask that you would speak and speak in clarity. May you receive all the glory for the words that are spoken, and may we receive heart change, conviction of sin, and courage and energy, zeal to go and live in response to who you are and what you have done. And God, may your spirit flow freely in us and through us this morning to give us new mercy new grace, and new energy for the mission that you have called us to. And in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and we'll let the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. And kids, you can meet your teachers in the lobby there. Parents, pick them up at the end of the service upstairs. Thank you for joining us um, as we uh, continue to recognize the holiday weekend of Thanksgiving. It's sort of a, a different... This is an anomaly in the calendar. 
and you may or may not have realized it, but the anomaly of the calendar this year is that there is a Sunday after Thanksgiving that is not technically an Advent Sunday. And so we're living in two different worlds this morning, still in gratefulness and, and, and with one foot into the expectation of, of Advent, which will officially start um, next Sunday. Uh, we have four Sundays. The way the Advent calendar works is you, Advent is celebrated the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. And because Christmas is on a Monday, there are, it's a very short Advent season. It's really only about three weeks, where sometimes it's up to four weeks. Um, So next week, to kick off our Advent season, our Christmas choir will be leading us in worship next Sunday morning as the introduction of Advent. And so please join us for that. Um, Please come and support and and worship as the choir leads us. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a rich Sunday of walking into the Advent season together. We will also have um, Christmas parties that night for both our youth and our kids' ministries. And uh, so those, you should get information from Rika and AJ, respectively, about those parties, but those are both next week. Um, Saturday, this coming Saturday, is our next men's ministry breakfast, so make note of that. Guys, we'd love to have you there. Um, And ladies, we have an event for you on the following Saturday, December the 9th. It's a simulcast event called Prepare Him Room. It's an Advent simulcast We'd love to have you join us for that. You can register either on the app or there's a paper sign up on that table in the back of the, of the room this morning. And then that evening, after the ladies simulcast, a group of us, um, the youth and anyone else that would want to go, are going to be going to the Operation Christmas Child Distribution Center in Atlanta. And so we'd love for any of you to come and to be a part of that and volunteer for a few hours in the distribution center. If you've never done that before, it's fun. You go through boxes. You kind of you're the kind of the quality control, making sure that boxes are well packed and everything's ready to go. They need a lot of volunteers for that. So if you want to participate, you want to do that um, as a family. Talk to AJ about that, and he'll give you the information and the firm details. And then um, after that, on December the 10th, another important Advent celebration is. Um, we want you to meet here, and we're going to leave and do, go Christmas caroling together. And we'll go to uh, maybe some homes, maybe some um, senior care centers, but we'd love for you to join us as, as a single, as a whole family. Um, whoever in your family could come, uh, come and join us, and we'll handle the details of kind of where we go from there. But join us on December the 10th for uh, Christmas caroling together. I'm going to ask you now, as we finish this series that we've been in for, for three months about encountering God, would you join me in Ezekiel chapter 37? I hope all of you were like me and had an opportunity to celebrate the Thanksgiving season together as a family. Uh, maybe it was just your close family, or maybe there's some extra people Involved, Maybe you had some out-of-town guests or you were the out-of-town guests. For, for my family, we were the out-of-town guests. We went to Cincinnati to be with my side of the family. And anytime you have a big holiday celebration, there's a little bit of risk, and you know it. Because when you walk in to a big extended family celebration, you're, you're putting people in the same room that are just not used to being in the same room really, really often. 
And so occasionally, a family might have a crazy uncle or two. Or some of your families might have, like, everybody's just crazy, and that's okay. Um, But when you walk into that family celebration, you walk in recognizing, like, if you've ever... Okay, so let's think back. If you're married, think back to the first time you took your spouse home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? What did you have to prepare them for? What did you have to, you know, sort of give the disclaimer beforehand? Well, Uncle Frank, he's just a little odd sometimes. Or, or Aunt Debbie, she just gets a little crazy about, about certain things. And so you got to just sort of steer carefully through the conversations. And you know, if you're in the family, you know the minefields that you could walk into. You know kind of the, the crazy-isms of everybody in the room. But when you're new to the family, you kind of fly blind, and you're, you're like, well, what in the world just happened? And you can say that's not your family, but the risk of saying, well, that's, my family's not like that, is that you might be the one that's like that. Because <laughs> if you don't see it, then there, that might actually be the problem. When we look at Ezekiel, I'm just going to tell you, Ezekiel is the crazy uncle of the Old Testament. If you read through the book of Ezekiel in your quiet time, it's going to feel like that awkward Thanksgiving table. You're going to be like, how did I get here? What is he talking about? What is going on? Let me just give you a little bit of the short flyby of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 4, he draws an outline of the city of Jerusalem on a big brick. And then he plays. He kind of enacts, like a kid would play with toy soldiers, he sort of plays this siege of the city of Jerusalem. And then later, he lays on his side for a prolonged period, like days, lots of days. And then he turns over and lays on the other side for days, still in Ezekiel chapter 4. Then he cooks food over dung as the fuel to cook his food. Then he cuts off his hair, he burns a third of it, chops a third of it into little pieces, and scatters a third of it, just throws it up in the wind to scatter to the wind. He's the crazy one, right? Then later in the book, in chapter 12, he puts all of his belongings on his back and just wanders around as if he's moving when he's not moving. He's just got all of his belongings packed on his back. And later in chapter 12, also, as he's drinking water, every time he drinks water, he trembles and shakes just at the act of drinking water. And then, when his beloved wife dies, he acts like nothing happened. He just sort of pretends nothing happens. Ezekiel, as you're reading through it, not understanding what God is doing in these stories, he seems rather odd. In fact, E.C. Broom, a Freudian psychologist in 1946, he published an academic article called Ezekiel's Abnormal Personality. And in 1956, on the basis of, of Freudian psychological theory, he decided to psychoanalyze Ezekiel, and here's what he came up with. He said Ezekiel's behavior was symptomatic of a recognizable mental illness, and it was consistent with paranoid schizophrenia, marked by periods of catatonia, narcissism, and masochism. 
And then he concluded, there can be no doubt we are dealing with a true psychotic capable of great religious insight. That's what the world looks at Ezekiel and says, a true psychotic capable of great religious insight. Here's what you need to know about Ezekiel. He was called to be a prophet of God. And he was called, as many of the prophets were, into a very difficult ministry, a particularly difficult task in his ministry. The prophets were fulfilled multiple different roles in God's plan of salvation for the nations. The prophets were first and foremost mouthpieces. The prophets are those that speak on behalf of God. That's their primary role, to become God's voice to the people and say what God says. One of the things you see in Ezekiel that is more clear in Ezekiel than most of the other prophets is prophets are also called to act as representatives of the people. So in all of Ezekiel's dramatic scenes where he's acting in such a way that anyone from the outside would look at him and say, this man has lost his mind. Ezekiel is acting in those ways because God told him to. God told him, Ezekiel, you ain't moving, but pack all of your belongings on your back as if you are. And then, in the middle of the night, start digging in a wall. And then, every time you drink water, shake uncontrollably as you drink water. God tells him to do those things. Why? Because God is making Ezekiel a picture of his people. The suffering of Ezekiel is a picture of the suffering of the people who have disobeyed God. And this is what their lives are going to look like in the exile and the suffering that comes. Ezekiel stands in a really important part of history. The, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. He's in the southern kingdom of Judah. If you don't know your, Israel, your Israelite history, that's okay. I'll give you the short version. The kingdom splits in two between Israel and Judah. Israel is taken away first, and then Judah remains. And Judah remains, and Judah is the, is the section of the nation that is the southern tribes, called the southern kingdom, and it's built around Jerusalem as its capital, as its center. So Jerusalem was originally the capital of the whole nation, became the capital of Judah when the nation split. But Jerusalem is where the temple was from the beginning, the tabernacle before the, te the temple, but then the temple was always in Jerusalem. It was the center of worship. And so Judah believed they were safe because they had the temple. They were there in God's city with God's presence. But Ezekiel shows up and is doing his ministry, doing his both proclamation and representation ministry at that generation in which Judah and Jerusalem fall. So he's a part of both the last generation in Jerusalem before the exile and a part of the first generation of the exile in Babylon. And so all of Ezekiel's words and, and predictions and representations and prophecies, all of those things are happening in this unique context of this cataclysmic fall of the nation. And so we, we walk into Ezekiel 37 and read a vivid passage that we've probably all heard pieces of or we've sung a little song about them bones and bones and dry bones. You've, you've probably heard something about this rather strange story 
But we've got to understand what is God doing in Ezekiel and in the nation at the time. So here's how we're going to unpack it. I'm going to give you just two steps. The story, first of all, we're going to go through the story. We're going to go through what it means for us. And this is basically the approach we've taken for three months into these different stories. It's been a little different, right? It's been a little bit of a change of pace. Uh, October, November, December, or sorry, September, October, November, we haven't gone through a specific book of the Bible. We've jumped around. And we spent September in the life of Christ looking at some major episodes where somebody comes face to face with Jesus. And then in October, we spent some time in the family of Abraham and all of God's face-to-face interactions with the family of Abraham. And now in November, we're talking about the Spirit of God and the strange and surprising but real things that the Spirit of God does in the Old Testament um, passages. So we looked at Dagon, a false god, a few weeks ago. We looked at um, Elijah and his experiences at Mount Carmel followed by Mount Horeb and how God wasn't moving in the big storm, but in the still small voice. And now we're here in Ezekiel 37 for this surprising but really powerful passage that tells us something about God, something about the nation of Israel, and it tells us something about us. So first, let's look at the story. Um, Number one, we see Ezekiel is there as a representative and as a mouthpiece. But number two, before we get into Ezekiel 37, I want you to know what I alluded to earlier, the people trusted in the wrong things, okay? That's an important concept as you come in here. The people loved being the residents of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judea because they had the temple. What's the biggest difference between Israel and Judah? Well, there's a lot. But if you ask Judah, one of the biggest differences in their national identity in that time is they didn't have the temple. We got the temple. So if you read through Ezekiel, and it's like this in other prophets, the people continue to just assume God protects the temple. God protects his house. So no matter what Ezekiel says about coming judgment, about coming exile, about all these things that are going to unravel for the nation, they assume if the temple is standing... God's going to protect us. One of the most vivid temple scenes in all of Scripture happens then in Ezekiel chapter 10. This is what it says. I'm going to read it to you just briefly. Ezekiel 10, 18 through 19. You can turn there or you can write it down and look at it later. Ezekiel's looking at the temple. And in chapter 10, verse 18, the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, stood over the angels. The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them what that tells you is God just left the temple that's what happened all through this story the people of Israel are confident God's going to not let his house fall And then Ezekiel chapter 10, he's like, well, then I'll just move out. If you're not going to follow me, if you're not going to obey, if you're not going to turn from your wickedness, then I'm going to move out. And that's exactly what he does in Ezekiel 10. He moves out, and escorted by the cherubim, 
the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. And here's where the people were trusting in the wrong thing for their salvation. They trusted in the presence of the temple more than the presence of God. They trusted in this sort of, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the difference between a grace-based religion and this superstitious paganism. And paganism and superstitious is this pragmatism that's built on, well, we're going to try it, and if it works, then God must be in it. And so what they're saying in their superstition is the temple is our lucky charm. Just like in the days of, day of, of the Ark of the Covenant and where we saw Dagon bow to the Ark of the Covenant, what the people of Israel thought then is as long as we have the Ark, we're good. Well, now, a few generations later, they're saying as long as we have the temple, we're good. It's the same mindset, the same incomplete mindset in which they're trusting in the wrong thing for salvation. And here's where it comes to you and I. We do the same. We do the same when we don't focus on grace-based faith and religion, but we focus on this outward action-based religion. And you see it in, in the parent that just wants their kids desperately to be in church so that they'll stay out of trouble. You see it in the family that says, well, things aren't going well outside, so if we just go to church, then things will get better. Let me tell you something. I highly recommend going to church. I'm a big believer in the local church, in the community of the Spirit of God. But we can't treat church as a superstition in the way Old Testament Israel treated the temple or the Ark of the Covenant as a superstition. We can't just say, because I go to church, God's going to bless me. That's paganism. That's superstition. We come to church to renew our dependence upon Him, renew our faithfulness to Him, to experience him in the presence of other people. So the goal is not church attendance. The goal is connection with God. We come here to meet the God who loves us, to meet the Christ, the Messiah Jesus, who came to earth and saved us, to experience the Spirit of God that indwells us and then sends us out. So the church is not an end. The church is a refueling station to go out and live your lives outside. That's where real life is. This is preparation for eternity, but this is also preparation for real life outside, where we live the cause of Christ. We live in the kingdom of God outside. So the danger is treating the church like Israel treated the temple, which is this sacred place, and we're good as long as we have a connection to the sacred place. Didn't work for Israel. It's not going to work for you and your family either. Come to church not for this superstitious protection from bad things happening in your life. Come to the church to meet a God who loves you, to meet a Jesus who has died on the cross for you. So we go on. The people had trusted in the wrong thing, so God was sending them into exile. But God sends Ezekiel this vision, this powerful vision in Isaiah 37. So now, after all that time, we're finally ready to read our scripture for today. Uh, Ezekiel 37.1, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. I've just read one verse, but I'm going to stop you right there. If you have your Bible open, what I'd love for you to do is just mark, watch the word spirit and breath. Just mark them as we go through, and I'm going to tell you why later. 
So the Spirit of the Lord sent me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered them, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause a breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy, say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So here we go. Here's this story of these bones that are brought to new life. And I asked you to mark the words spirit and breath, and I'll go ahead and tell you why. Because the word spirit means breath. The word breath means spirit. And it's one of the key repetitions in this passage, this understanding of the breath of God as the spirit of God. And so it is the spirit of God that is doing the work in in this passage, bringing life where there was not life. Verse 2 says, The bones were very dry. I don't know why Ezekiel feels the need to add that point in, as if there's a difference between wet bones that are only mostly dead and dry bones that are very, very dead. I don't know. Because I think the bones, whether they still have flesh on them or not, and at what state of rotting they're in, they're dead. And he's looking over this valley of bones this army that has been conquered, this people that has been slain. And God leads him there for a reason. And God says, Ezekiel, you tell me. And you think about it. I told you about Ezekiel's craziness, right? I told you all the things that God had him do. So at this point, Ezekiel, he's ready for anything. If, he, if God tells you to spend hundreds of days laying on a side, and then just turn over and lay on your other side. You finally are like, okay, I'm done. Like, no, actually, I just want you to shift and then lay. If God tells you to go many days being silent, when God asks you a question, you're kind of a little bit, I guess, 
anxious every time God says something like that to you, right? Like, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? And Ezekiel's like, I don't know. My whole life has been following you to be this example and this representation of the people. God, I don't know. Only you know. Just tell me what happens next. I don't know. And God says, not only, not only are these bones going to live, I'm going to use you to make these bones live. There's two powerful means by which these bones live. And it's so clear in this passage, and it's so beautiful, and this is what it means for us, and this is what it means for every act of redemption throughout the scriptures and throughout human history. The two means of new life are there in this passage and follow as a trail all throughout every passage of redemption in the scripture. Ezekiel prophesies twice, both under God's direction. Okay, So first, he says, God, I don't know. I, I, I guess the bones can live, only you know. So in verse 4, God says, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So prophecy number one, the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. And then, at the word of the Lord, verse 7, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. And behold, there were sinews and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath. So prophecy number two brings breath. Prophecy number one is the word of the Lord, and it brings flesh and new life. Prophecy number two is the breath. And in verse 9, it says, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe, and breathe on these slain that they may live. The word of God and the spirit of God. That's how redemption works. Right there. It, it's, it's literally that simple in this passage and in every passage. The word of God and the spirit of God. It is a renewal of the Genesis creation narrative. How did, God, how did God create? God spoke into being the word of God in Genesis 1. And then when man was formed out of the dust of the ground, first the flesh was formed first, right? And then what did God do? God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Breath and spirit, ruach in Hebrew, it's the same thing. God's spirit is God's breath. When God breathes into somebody, God sends his spirit onto them. So Jesus, at one point with the disciples, he breathes his spirit onto them. God's breath is his spirit. That is how new life occurs. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of us. Now, as we look at this image, one of the questions we have to ask is, what was the original meaning? So we're going to spend a little bit of time on this because it, it means something really powerful for us. I've already, I've already told you what that is, and we'll, we'll spend some more time on that in a second. But we, but we cannot get past the fact that in verse 11, it's saying something about the whole house of Israel. And there's a lot more in the context that is, that is told to us. So let's look at what this says about the whole house of Israel and what that can mean. In Ezekiel 36, 26, so the chapter before, 
God says to Israel, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So first, there's a new heart. And then, in chapter 37, there's this new life. The word of God comes, the spirit of God comes. But then as you go farther in, verse 15 and following, you see that the other part of the vision is the coming together of the two different parts of Israel. Remember I told you there's a northern kingdom, Israel, there's a southern kingdom, Judah. And God makes it very clear in verses 15 and following that, he's, that this vision is for both. He's going to bring them together, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And then in verse 24, he makes it very clear too, there's going to be a new king on the, on the throne. His name is David. It doesn't have to actually be David. We know that the new King David is Jesus. But it's a Davidic, a Davidic king who's also a servant and a shepherd. A Davidic shepherd king is going to rule over both parts of the nation that come together in this great prophetic accomplishment of God. Now, there's all sorts of, of debate, and we can have long discussions about what that means. And some people will say... Well, this is what happens after the exile in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when the people come back to the land. That's, that's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. Some people say that because there's a nation of Israel in Israel right now, this is, that's a part of this. The, the modern-day resurrection of Israel is a part of this. And some people say that it's still looking forward towards something that hasn't fully come and will be realized in the eschaton, the fancy word for the last days. But let me tell you something. However we see it, we know the fullness of this vision has not fully come to pass. Because at the, at the end of the day, you read Ezekiel chapter 37, and there is this, this king who is ruling in righteousness over Israel, true Israel, those that have been, been given a new heart and a new life. And so this is a believing Israel. This is a righteous Israel. This is a unified Israel where all tribes have been reunited and come together. And so the literal, the literal consummation of this could be told in multiple elements throughout the, the return of, of Israel in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the modern-day return, the future um, eschaton, the last days. There's a lot of, of, of really powerful elements here. And let me tell you something about biblical prophecy. What happens often in biblical prophecy, I've used this illustration before, but if you look over at, at, at a mountain range, and if you look at one mountain followed by another mountain, what you see is two mountains, and you don't see the space in between. And that's often how the biblical prophets work. They see things in succession when there's great space, great distance in between, okay? And so as we, as we prepare for Advent, and as we start to talk about the coming of Jesus, next week I'm going to give you guys a, um, a devotional on the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah um, uh, anticipates the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And one of the things that Isaiah does in all of his prophecies is he sees the Messiah coming, and then he sees the end of days coming. And he sees the nations all coming together in worship of the one true king. And here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus, and we haven't seen what Isaiah is talking about as following Jesus. And that's okay. 
That doesn't disprove Isaiah. It means that when the biblical prophets look at the eschaton, look at the end of the age, they see the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, as inaugurating that final age, and they don't see how long that final age lasts. So right now we're between some mountaintops, and we're trying to figure out what, what, what's happening next. But we know that in the end, all nations will come to salvation. All nations will receive the benefit of this image. All nations will be grafted into Israel and be given new heart and be given a new life and be given flesh where there was no flesh, where there once was dry bones, the offer of salvation now goes to all people by the word and by the spirit. So what the image means for the nation of Israel um, is not something we have to fully figure out in this time together. But what we are going to do is we're going to spend some more time diving in on what it means for us. I'm going to give you three words. Death, despair, and rebirth. What it means for us, death. You say, Tim, this was a happy image. Why is the first point negative? Actually, the first two are negative. Sorry about that. Death. You look at this passage, and this passage is true of the nation of Israel. The nation of Judah specifically, but it's talking about a reunification of Judah and Israel, so we'll just say Israel. But the death has come to the nation because of what? Disobedience, rejection of God. And in that, Israel is us. We are Israel. We are the nation too. Because we've done all those same things. Without the movement of God and His Word and His Spirit, we are left dead. And so, for some of us, the reality is you are still dead. And your bones are not just disconnected from each other, they're very dry, as Ezekiel says. But for others, there's despair. Now, why is there despair? There's despair for those that are alive and yet look out on a valley of people that they care about. Look out on a world of people created in God's image and see nothing but, but death and dry bones. And maybe that was your experience at the Thanksgiving table. I imagine for some of you it probably was. That you were sitting at a Thanksgiving table, thankful for the people in your family that you love and love you and love Jesus. But there was probably some despair when you looked across at these people over here that had rejected Jesus, that are not following Christ in their lives, that are estranged from the family or estranged from God. And that leaves us in this feeling of despair because when you look at a lost person, we need to have spiritual eyes when we looked at lost people. Lost people, let's be real here, lost people are nice. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Some Christians aren't nice either, though. But lost people are made in the image of God. Lost people are those in need of salvation. But at the end of the day, lost people are a pile of dry bones. That's not a great invitation to just tell them that. But from a spiritual standpoint, that's what we're dealing with. We love them as people in need of salvation. We care for them. We serve them. We sacrifice ourselves, our needs, our wants and desires so that they can see a sacrificial God that loves them and wants to serve them so that they can follow a servant king like we have. But with spiritual eyes, we see 
that those people that have rejected God all around us, they are not just wrong, and they're not just sick. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And so this passage leaves us with a full awareness of that, that some are dead, and some of us look across the deadness of those that we love and of our culture at large. And we see that valley of dry bones as just the culture of our day. And we think, can these bones live? Is there redemption possible? Is there new life possible? And the last thing this passage means for us is that there is rebirth. Rebirth. 1 Peter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's what we sang about this morning. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Ephesians 2 says, He Himself is our peace, who made us both one, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So when we are born again, we have a new and living hope, Peter tells us. When we are born again, we have peace with God, Paul tells us. And we see in this passage, there, is, there are two elements of this rebirth. Two things that come hand in hand in any act of rebirth, from creation in Genesis to recreation in Ezekiel and recreation as defined in all of the New Testament. Here's what Ephesians says. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. How does Paul describe salvation? I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to ask you to, to look for the Word and the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13. In whom you also, when you heard the Word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Word and the Spirit. Genesis 1, Ezekiel 37, Ephesians 1. The Word and the Spirit go together. So how do we encounter God? That's the big question, right? That's what we've been looking at for, for three months. And here, after three months, I'm giving you two words. The Word and the Spirit. How do you encounter God? You go to the Word, and you wait for the Spirit. You ask for the Spirit to flow freely through the Word into a broken heart and mind into a heart and mind that is suffering with pain, despair, fear, confusion. But the Word and the Spirit, that is the answer. So if you have a lost person in your life somewhere, you have somebody around you that is, that is broken and has rejected Christ, what do you do? You go to the Word for the Spirit. And you ask that God gives you an opportunity to speak the word in the power of the Spirit. What do you do when you're in despair, when you look at the culture around us and you see nothing but a valley of dry bones in our society and in our world? You go to the word, 
to be lifted by the Spirit, to deliver the Word and the power of the Spirit so that God can move and God can restore. And you believe in a God that does miracles, that does crazy things in the life of crazy Uncle Ezekiel. Zeke, we'll call him. Crazy Uncle Zeke has stories of redemption and transformation all through all of the crazy symbols and pictures that God gives us. And this picture of rebirth is a picture for us. That when you believe in Jesus, your dry bones can be stitched together. And when you receive the Spirit of God, new life comes where there was death. So as the band comes to close us with one final song of the gospel, I'm going to ask each of you, have you received this word and this spirit for your new life? Have you received the word of the Lord that brings salvation by the blood of Jesus and through the conviction of sin and, and the act of repentance brings you new life before the throne of Christ? Have you received the Spirit breathing into you? If not, you need only, this morning, confess your sins and receive the new gift of life in Jesus. Come forward and talk to me about it. We, I'd love to. Or reach me at the end of the service. We'd love to celebrate with you new life in Jesus today. But maybe, maybe what God's doing in you right now is calling for you to cry out for the dry bones around you in your life. And, and I'd invite you to come to the altar to pray. Pray for the lost. Pray for the world. Pray for the lost son that you love. Pray for the lost brother that, that, that is estranged from you. Or pray for the brokenness of our world, that these dry moans will live. And because of the blood of Christ, we can pray in faith, believing that God will redeem. Let's stand and we'll sing together.